Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. UCAS have some research out on students and choice. Uh, we'll chat Nations News as Wales bags its own Erasmus Plus replacement. Uh, there's a new commission looking at student futures. And what can we learn from a course on happiness at Bristol? It's all coming up. You know, why can't a mathematician, somebody studying maths, take some uh, a logic course in philosophy, etc., etc.? And you sort of think in terms of, like, you know, spreading the fixed cost and actually sort of keeping universities and specific departments sustainable, this ability to sort of pick and choose you know, a little. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us get across what matters this week. As usual, we have two fabulous guests. Uh, in Canterbury, Gavin Conlon is partner at London Economics. Gavin, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, it's nothing to do with higher education, really, but it's to do with nurse pay. So there was, a big, uh, there was a big debate in the House of Commons yesterday about nurse pay, and we've done a lot of work in that area. And we think, you know, given the fact that the, there's such an uh, increase in the number of people applying to nursing, we think this is important. Oh, fantastic stuff. And uh, there's a link to the debate in uh, Hansard on the site. And in Chepstow, Jenny Shaw is Student Experience Director at Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, yes. Well, last Friday, I in the morning, I put on my evening dress and I searched the house for my makeup, which I hadn't worn for a year. Uh, and in front of a pop-up green screen, I recorded uh, an announcement of a, a winner uh, of the Outstanding Customer Care Awards for our employer awards. And it was it was lovely, actually, just reading out the citation for this person nearly made me cry. So uh, that was that was lovely. That was something a bit different in lockdown, I think. Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with a new report on student choice. Where's next? The final part of the UCAS end of cycle series of stuff uh, highlights the impact of choices students make in secondary school and college. Jenny, tell us more. Yeah, so UCAS have produced uh, this report on students' pathways into and through higher education. It's very nicely done. Um, It draws on a number of surveys that UCAS have, have run recently, one of them quite large scale and a lot of secondary sources as well. Um, And what it does show, I think, quite clearly is the extent to which subject choice from GCSE onwards materially affects opportunities at degree level. Um, As we might expect, it shows that those who've got vocational qualifications at level three have got much more limited opportunities. So a bit of a killer stat there is only 3% um, go on to higher tariff universities compared to 27% with A-levels or equivalent. Um, I don't recall that the report talks about the class nature of these differences. So uh, perhaps that's a a bit of an elephant in the room. Um, And there's other constraints uh, on choice too that are mentioned. So sounds obvious, but students who stay at home are more likely to choose their university than before choosing their degree, which can constrain the the subjects they can do. Um, And the recommendations are almost entirely about better 
uh, careers advice and guidance and specifically as well about these being personalised to the individual. So I think uh, it's music to the ears of, for those of us who've got a, a bit of a history in uh, working in widening participation, because when we started on all of this, there was, you know, uh, pretty widespread information advice and guidance for uh, young people at school. And that's we've seen that ebb away over the years. So, you know, in a sort of a new era where we're, we're really trying as a, a country to rebuild our vocational and technical education, uh, I think it's a, a, a very good call by UCAS there. Gavin, isn't half the problem here that, you know, our higher education system is both in terms of ability and in terms of subject incredibly stratified and, and, and specialised? And, you know, we're trying, to fi- we're trying to fix that problem from the wrong end of the telescope. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I thought I thought this UCAS report was actually quite interesting. I thought um, this whole point about choosing individuals choose their subject first, or you know, and then the, choose their um, institution second, or or the last thing they choose. Often had been the case. I thought it was really sort of quite interesting. I thought the most interesting thing was if that's the case, if people choose their subject, you know, first, and then choose their institution first, choose their institution second. I think the real problem here is that if you're providing information, advice, and guidance, who does it? Because institutions naturally sort of have this incentive to sort of promote themselves, but there has to be sort of a sort of uh, a more centralised system for uh, information, advice, and guidance. Uh, and you know, I think some subject areas are sort of really sort of quite clear in terms of people want to study preclinical medicine. You know, t- teacher training, nursing, drama. People understand, or young people understand, what these professions might entail. You know, my own profession, economics. That was the, that was right down the bottom in terms of the proportion of students who reported wanting or starting to think about that subject at, to study at university uh, while in secondary. So I thought it was really good, but I think um, I always think about information and advice and guidance in terms of recommendations. I think a lot has to be done on that. I think it's always quite woolly, um, and I would sort of I would like to have seen a bit more detail on on uh, how that's going to work jenny the thing i worry about is this idea that you know we're supposed to be helping students make better choices younger at a younger and younger age and you know part of what's in this report really is a sense that what we're supposed to do therefore is improve the support for people at those younger ages but you know as i say part of what i worry about is that (laughs) even with all of the you know effective information advice and guidance in the world is it is it should we be making students make choices like this at 13 and 16 and so on it's yeah it's a difficult one isn't it because uh, you know to an extent they 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 do have to to narrow their subjects of study at those ages so you know for in in practical terms they have to but i thought it was interesting um when the report talked about you know going right back to primary school because really you know there's a there's a goal there not not to um for for young people not to constrain their own choices too early uh, and not to kind of take themselves out of the race very early on. So um, uh, I'm always going back in time. But, you know, when when we used to be doing this sort of thing in the early 2000s, everything was about um, raising aspirations and, and not letting people, you know, constrain their own aspirations. And I think probably at the expense of the, the practical issues of, of attainment uh, and the importance that that plays in getting to university. And it's it's swung completely the other way But now. But um, I do think uh, there was something in, in some, that early discourse that was that was really valuable. Um, there were some great studies done about in the you know late 90s, early 2000s about the link between university choice and personal identity. So how you saw yourself as a person and how you saw yourself in relation to 
the university and how that can really affect your choices. Um, I saw I saw this for myself. You don't mind me telling a little story on this. Um, I was doing a, an evaluation for uh, one of the lifelong learning networks about 10 years ago or so. Um, and I was with a, a group of students in a, a FE college and they'd all done absolutely brilliantly um, at level three uh, in a vocational subject and they were doing a foundation degree at the college um, but they all told me in different ways about how they couldn't go on to top that up to a full degree because they weren't the sort of person who goes to university. Now the university they were talking about was a mile down the road and really wanted them um, but they 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 didn't get think that they'd go this far. They only did it because of their HND tutor, who really encouraged them, made them feel safe. They didn't feel safe. They didn't feel comfortable going to university to do that final year to take it to a degree. Um, and I I think that's that's the bit that we can miss from some of this work. So uh, what I realise what I've done is not to talk about the report. I've talked about what the report doesn't say, but it's. I think it's just a question of balance. So, you know, looking at the, the practical considerations of, of progression and prior attainment, but also how the way you see yourself affects those choices. And you would need to combine the two of them really well, I think, in any effective IAG for it, for it to really work and really tackle disadvantage. Gavin, the other thing that uh, caught my eye here was the incredibly important role of uh, parents, both in, you know, the motivation to you know, apply to university and also the kind of subject and or career path that students are thinking about. Yeah, I mean, maybe this just reflects, um, you know, the reduction in the degree of social mobility and the impact. I mean, the role of parents has always been sort of, you know, crucial or pivotal in terms of uh, young people's decisions, either whether to go to university and then in relation to what subject to study and then in relation to what university to apply to. Um, I mean, a real concern is that, you know, that the extent of social mobility has declined uh, in the UK over the last couple of decades. And essentially, it, there's a sort of more of a divide between the, the well-off or the better off and the less well-off. And I think that's always a sort of concern of mine that, you know, some people will have all the, you know, positive parental support and, um, you know, but at the same time, there's a sort of essentially a complete market failure that there's a lot of young people who, as Jenny says, you know, they, they believe that university is not for them, even though they've done fantastically well at level three. And they believe the university is not for them, but they don't have this sort of like wraparound support uh, that can actually sort of encourage them to, you know, fulfill their, um, you know, full potential. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's sort of pointy elbow sort of parental support, but, you know, I mean, if you know the system, and I'm, I'm sort of, we know parental education and parental income is the biggest determinant of, of um, you know, children's outcomes in terms of education outcomes. So it's it's not pointy elbows, but um, it's hugely influential. And I think there are many, many young people who have the ability, but uh, don't have that sort of support. And I think it's about targeting resources to those individuals. Now, some devolved nations news. Welsh Education Minister Kirsty Williams has announced a new international learning exchange programme. Uh, and there's a new report on the brain drain of graduates and students leaving Northern Ireland. Gavin, tell us more. OK, so two uh, really quite important stories uh, this week. So one of the final acts uh, ahead of the election uh, in Wales Minister Kirsty Williams announced a new international learning exchange programme. Okay, so essentially this is Wales's uh, replacement for Erasmus Plus and essentially fills in all the gaps that uh, exist with the, the Turing uh, scheme that has been proposed by the uh, Westminster government. So really important stuff here because the Turing scheme uh, essentially is a real 
really, really partial uh, substitution for Erasmus Plus. It doesn't promote uh, reciprocal arrangements, so it's it's prom- it's supporting some students going overseas, uh, but it's not um, supporting students coming to uh, the UK. Um, and Kirsty Williams essentially has put 65 million quid worth of actual money into uh, higher education in Wales, and it's going to be sort of developed by Cardiff University. This covers between 22, 23, and 27. Uh, and it also covers staff, it covers FE and vocational, a really, really uh, big deal. And as a background, Kirsty Williams, I mean, she's a superstar. I, I'm sort of quite critical of many, many politicians. Kirsty Williams is a Lib Dem in uh, a Labour led government. She sort of, you know, hooked this education uh, portfolio because, you know, um, of the education minister losing his seat several years ago in uh, an assembly election. And she's done a brilliant job. I mean, she is an absolute superstar. She uh, was also involved in the Diamond Review of Higher Education Wales, and she implemented the recommendations. And she's standing down at this election, and that is a real loss to uh, Wales. Yeah, so I'm I'm a, a bit of a Kirsty Williams fangirl as well. Um, and uh, f- just a little thing really sprang out to me in reading this, which was that uh, the the scheme is going to extend to all educational settings, including youth work. And I think that just seems to be something that Wales does particularly well, is just include all parts of of the sector, um, uh, you know, and and even youth work in in these sort of schemes. So I think think it's very well done. Gavin, just before we move on to the Northern Ireland thing, is is there an issue here in terms of, you know, what's devolved and what isn't? Because you know, Turing and, and Erasmus Plus were UK-wide schemes. This is a Wales-only scheme. You know, higher education is devolved immigration. Is an, you know, where where does all of this sit? Is this double spending? Is this you know? Do we have to be do we have to do we have to think carefully about you know this kind of inter-UK you know devolved or not rivalry thing? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think it keeps it spicy. I sort of quite <laughs> enjoyed this. I, yeah, seriously, I think I think this. Uh, you know, I think this is is preferable that the the fact that education is a devolved matter. Um, I'm I'm all for a bit of devolution. I mean, the the the, the whole point is though that the, the Welsh policy making has been uh, spectacular. I mean, in terms of higher education, you know, they just are you know superb. They see they you know. Welsh officials, Welsh government, Welsh politicians just seem to have uh, the Welsh people and the Welsh ambition at centre stage. And they keep doing what I would sort of say is the right thing. Um, You know, it's also the sort of case, I mean, you look at this from an economic perspective. Um, You know, it's been work done for the Department for International Trade uh, many, many years about soft power. And they ask sort of entrepreneurs, overseas entrepreneurs who engage in foreign direct investment in the UK. And they say, listen, why do you set up in Leicester? You know, why did you set up your production plant in Leicester? They say, well, listen, I went to university in Leicester for a year and I know Leicester and it's grand. People are nice. So that's where I set up. And something like this, encouraging uh, overseas students to come to Wales, uh, will have a long-term positive economic impact. You know, you spend a year in Cardiff and then you sort of think, okay, I'm going to set up a business in the UK. Where will I set up? I'm going to set up in Cardiff. And I think, so I think... You know, I think Westminster government has, you know, they should actually just look at Wales and sort of think, right, what are these guys doing? We might want to tag along with that instead of the other way around. I mean, Wales have, have played a blinder. And look, and about 18 months ago, we did an interview with Kirsty Williams. And uh, given we haven't got an episode next week, <laughs> uh, we'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes to have a listen to, as we say, uh, goodbye to Kirsty Williams. Now, let's let's move back to uh, Northern Ireland, Gavin. What's the story here on Brain Drain? Yeah, so this is this is a bit of a, uh, a shocker in Northern Ireland. Okay, so this is the flip side of devolved um, 
devolved powers. Um, so Pivotal is a public policy forum, and they're linked to QUB, Queen's University, Belfast, and Ulster University. And essentially, they'd be doing uh, a report about brain drain of graduates and students leaving Northern Ireland for study uh, in the rest of the UK. Now, this is a real, real issue, okay? Because in Northern Ireland, um, essentially, there are sufficient numbers of students, domestic or home domicile students, to uh, fill three universities. And essentially, Ulster University and Queen's University Belfast are two universities, and then the third university is England. Okay, so they see a, an absolute chunk of students going across to England predominantly. Um, and of course, once you undertake your degree in England, um, you know, the likelihood of returning is very, very low. So we did a piece of work a couple of years ago for Queen's University Belfast, and, and the point is that if you're uh, if you go to if you study in Northern Ireland, you know four years, three years after graduation, you've got an eighty percent chance of being in Northern Ireland. If you study in England, you've got a thirty-three wow. percent chance wow. of being in Northern Blimey. Ireland. So, it's, it, so essentially, it is really a brain yeah. drain. Now, I'm Irish. I'm from the Republic of Ireland, and you know, I grew up in a you know different period. But this is exactly what I went through. You know, my parents said to me, the most important piece of paper you have are your your degree certificate and your passport. And you're, you're told that explicitly in, in the mid to late 80s. Mm. And, um, you know, the expectation was you get your degree and you beg, borrow and steal to, to achieve that. And then you go. And it's, it's, you know, it's actually quite upsetting to see, um, you know, a country that has, you know, a, a sort of a very good secondary level education system losing its best and its brightest uh, and never to return. And that's a, that's a real problem. Mm. And the other thing is, the other thing is economically, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, if you hold on to your graduates, you know, it might cost a little bit more to educate them in Northern Ireland than in England. And this is where it all comes down to. The cost is a couple of thousand pounds more to educate a student domestically than sending them off to England because of the different funding arrangements. But in terms of the economic benefit, I mean, the economic benefit is 15 times greater uh, than the, the additional cost. And... It's just economic suicide to, um, you know, continue with this policy. Um, you know, education is the biggest determinant of long-run economic growth that there is. So, you know, it is the, probably the best investment that the, the uh, Northern Irish executive could make. Best investment there is. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the Republic of Ireland was, again, a small peripheral country with a population of 4 million 30 years ago. And essentially, you know, the key point, you know, and Ireland turned into this Celtic tiger that became this huge, attractive uh, country for foreign direct investment. Uh, and it continues to be. But this literally happened in the early 1990s when, um, you know, they were able to, the, the, the government was able to hold on to its um, its graduates. And one of the things that it did in the mid-1990s was essentially to introduce a free fees initiative and essentially, essentially free education, free higher education, which previously always had to be paid for and essentially it held on to uh, its its students and then it held on to its graduates and now it has a, like an absolutely thriving economy um so you know northern ireland i mean they don't have to look very far to see where it can work okay and i know uh, ireland made a dog's dinner for, in the great financial crisis but you know that was a different thing but you know northern ireland they, like i said they don't have to look far to see you know it, you know, investing in education, it can have long-term positive economic consequences. I was going to say it's a point very well made. It's it's uh, made made just be my cynicism. I think it, it would require quite a lot of uh, you know forethought. It's a it's a long-term investment, isn't it, for a a payoff down the line? Um, and if if they're willing to do that, it 
you know, absolutely the, the economics are there. It's uh, yeah. whether whether that's going to happen. But one, one other thing is, I mean, there is a different social value placed on education in Northern Ireland and in uh, Republic of Ireland than in uh, England and Wales in particular. I think it's sort of more similar to Scotland. I think there is an appetite. This is the thing. There's a huge appetite for education in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. And so, you know, it's, it's pushing against an open door. I mean, if you if you... Uh, introduce policies to encourage students to study in Northern Ireland. I think you know that'll be very that'll be accepted, you know, uh, quite happily by the population. Gavin, do you know what happened? Like, how many uh, students in Northern Ireland study in the south and then you know return or stay in the south? Uh, I mean, not that many. I mean, it's it, but it's pretty porous. I mean, the the thing is, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland now. I mean, it. You know, on the ground, people don't think of it very differently. It's also the case if you look at for Northern Irish students. I mean, in terms of this Erasmus thing, I mean, the, the the Irish government has guaranteed Erasmus for Northern Irish students. I mean, you know, I know it's incredible. I mean, talk about exerting soft power by the, the Republic exerting soft power in the north. It's like you know, here are all the goodies and the treats. You know, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, you know, if you drove between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland, you could tell. Uh, which country you're in because the roads in Southern Ireland were absolutely shambolic and like potholed and you drove into the north and all of a sudden it's like you're on a Formula One racing track and then uh, seriously and then you get back into the Republic you know and again you know you sort of it's like driving you know T42 tank in Afghanistan and then um you know, it was it's incredible. Now it's the other way around. I mean, the, the Republic is offering all these goodies and sweets and stuff and you know train lines between the north and the south and it's like you know look at our cash yeah. i mean now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he the way we organize our curriculum the way that it's structured into a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a doctoral degree is a kind of inheritance of the medieval curriculum structure which in turn is an inheritor of the kind of late antiquity notion of, of what made a good education for um, a, a citizen the idea was that you would separate the the curriculum that you would teach to people um, so that they had a general education and then you would go on and develop it and the way the medieval university worked is that once you attained the master's rank uh, at the university, you could teach anywhere in Christendom. You could take your degree and teach absolutely anywhere. And so the, the ability to take your master's degree was, was seen as the most important thing. And the curriculum was split so that the first three or so years um, uh, you did a, a foundational uh, course. And then in your last three years at university, you would spend your time much more in, in debate and discussion uh, and you would advance your, your study and be therefore in a position to become a teacher. You'd be in a position to do that. And so the first chunk of the time, you got a bachelor's degree. You admitted to a bachelor's degree and the second part you were admitted to a master's degree. All in arts, because that was all the thing was. It was all general. There was no specialisation. You took the course. And this pattern gets um, to be the, the stabilising um, organisational factor of both English and Scottish universities. You take the, the course and then, and then you leave it. But the second part of the course starts to become much less interesting when Oxford and Cambridge become more of a place for gentlemen to go. They don't really want to learn how to be able to teach and therefore the, the master's bit um, slowly wanes and therefore um, the ability to come and take the exercises that you need to do slowly falls out of favour. Um, but they allow the, the fact that if you're in good standing you can still get the degree of master. 
uh, and so slowly over time the, the requirements fall away uh, and you end up in the situation that you do the first part of your study you get your bachelor's degree and then as long as you don't muck up and you're in good standing you can top that up with your master's degree at the end so we have the situation which confuses some people especially people writing wikipedia entries for politicians uh, that people uh, think that they've studied an ma but actually of course they haven't they've just done what we the rest of us have done a, a bachelor's degree and then a certain number of terms afterwards depending on the arcane rules of the different universities you can upgrade that to a master's uh, so you end up with this strange slightly strange situation um, uh, that sits in place uh, at the start of the 19th century, when the, you know, the university think it's probably a good idea to introduce rigorous examinations, there is an attempt to bring in proper uh, structures for people to get their MAs. But because people have got into the habit of just turning up uh, and graduating, it, it doesn't it doesn't stick. And therefore, all the effort is put in terms of uh, organising the honours level um, and not worrying too much about the fact that people could come back and take their MA. And it becomes you know, atrophied into a rank. But Durham and London, when they set up their universities, they decide they will have exams for the master's degree, and therefore they become an extra exercise that you can come and do at the end. You go away with your first degree, but if you want to come back and do more study, it is proper study. You actually have to do something to get your master's degree. Uh, a little later, Harvard drops. Harvard had gone into the same kind of wheeze. It had inherited this. It decides that that's, that's no good as well. So it also institutes the idea that you actually have to do learning and take exams to get your MA. Uh, you can't just apply for it. So we've continued with this kind of strange setup. It survived uh, the uh, qualifications framework, Oxford and Cambridge, uh, except that it's not a degree, it's a, it's a rank inside the university, uh, and generally everyone is, is happy with this. But just as an example of how sometimes uh, we need to look to our, our lawmakers uh, for uh, a, a thorough discussion on these things, uh, in 2011, Chris Leslie, um, uh, MP for uh, a, part, a part of Nottingham, um, brought a private member's bill um, called Master's Degrees Minimum Standards Bill. Um, uh, and the idea, obviously, being that he's going to kill off the MAs at Oxford and Cambridge. So it's one of those private members' days, so there's uh, uh, the obligatory backbench Tory MPs trying to talk everything out. So the, um, David Nuttall uh, is on filibustering duty that day. They've already talked out something about um, equality, so they have another go at talking this one out. Uh, but Chris... Um, sets off to say that time has come to end this anachronism and a growing body of opinion believes it's time to draw a veil over these arrangements. Um, if we set aside the cheeky sense of privilege, even the most battle-hardened defenders of elitism have to admit that the total and utter lack of merit behind this apparently great award is unfair. Surely it is now in the best interest of modern and open Oxford and Cambridge universities for them voluntarily to relinquish this privilege and prove they are beacons of genuine learning and earned distinction. And it's David Willits who gets the reply, the holder of uh, an Oxford MA, of course, um, and uh, declares that interest, of course. Um, I did uh, shell out eventually to buy my MA, he says in, on the record, uh, in order to vote in the elections for the Chancellor of the University of Oxford and for the Professor of Poetry. As an MA, you have a, a status that allows you to vote in uh, some of those things. Uh, for us to act, we would not only have to be persuaded of the problem of confusion, he says, but would have to take a significant step towards intervening in the internal arrangements of the universities in question. That's where the position of the Shadow Minister rather surprises me. Because my view, David Willits, is that intervening in such a way in the autonomous decisions of the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge would go contrary to what I thought was the shared view of both front benches. The view that the autonomy of our universities was one of their reasons for success. Um, and he concludes by saying... Um, Leslie has enabled me to set up my beliefs in a Tory in protecting those institutions and traditions where they do not do anyone any damage. 
So, there we have the philosophy of the uh, Minister of State for Universities and Science. And obviously Oxford and Cambridge continue happily um, awarding MAs to people, um, and it's a tradition. And, as I said, apart from some people confused on Wikipedia, uh, it does anyone, no one, any harm. Now, next up, the UPP Foundation has launched a Student Futures Commission to explore how universities can take action to support students impacted by the pandemic. Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, caught up with its chair, Mary Kernock-Cook, to find out more. And Mary's here to tell us all about it. Mary, what's your, what's your new job? Uh, well, Mark, thanks. And I'm actually really excited to have been asked to chair the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission, which will be uh, launching in partnership with Wonky. Um, and this is a new commission to uh, really look carefully at what the sector can do to support our new and continuing students um, when they come back to some kind of uh, normality for their university life. We, you know, we've seen all through the schools sector, haven't we? That you know, there's a catch-up czar and there's a national tutoring program, and rightly, everyone's really concerned about school children catching up. But there seems to have been a deafening silence, really, about how we help university students emerge from lockdown and try to uh, get their sense of agency in their own life stories back on track again that's right and and this came out of several conversations about how the government were putting some resources into um catch up for for schools but you know very much as with the rest of the pandemic universities you know it's up to you do you know do you know off you go <laughs> do it yourself um as much as they'll kind of comment about any of these things it, it seems like a great opportunity for the sector to come together and come up with some practical solutions doesn't it yeah and uh, I think this this sort of approach can bring out the absolute best in the higher education sector. You know, when it mobilises in collaborative mode rather than compete mode, um, we, we often see universities and, and passionate people in them who really care about students uh, doing fantastic work. And I think what we're what you know what we're hoping to do is to bring together views from right across the sector from different. Uh, different sources and and indeed people outside the sector, importantly from students as well, to find out what students want and need in this kind of post-pandemic period um, and then try and bring that all together so that everyone in the sector can uh, can share and and learn from everyone else's ideas and initiatives and really try and work hard and quickly to to get things back on track for our students. Mm. And it's not just about learning, is it? It, it, it? There's the whole, the whole kind of student experience, and and what's been lost, and what needs to be brought back for next year. Yeah, I think that's so important because, you know, I think students have been able to do some learning. They've been, you know, they've been getting online support through this period. Um, perhaps there will be some remedial learning needed, particularly from those who've, you know, in effect jumped from year 12 in school straight into straight into university. But I, but I think it's also how thinking about how students are going to compensate for the the lost sort of richness of, of university life, including, by the way, the learning that takes place informally 
uh, at university, you know, in groups and walking across campus and socialising and so on. And I've, I've always thought that university is a period for sort of cognitive maturing. And, you know, it's not just about reading and, and writing um, and trying to find ways to, to make up for that richness that I think has been uh, lost while students have been working largely in isolation is going to be really important. And, and in terms of a theory of change, I think, you know, there's, as I said at the start, there's, there's, there's some that the government can do and we, we probably want them to uh, in, in, uh, create some action, maybe some funding, or we don't know where it's all going to lead. But, but really, it's going to be in the gift of individual universities and, and the sector working together as a whole, isn't it, to, to put, in, put together meaningful programmes of change. I, I completely agree, but I also think we shouldn't um, ignore the important part that students themselves can play in this. Um, and indeed, um, student unions and other peer support networks within uh, within universities. And I, th- I think the combination of of universities working hard to understand what you know what the deficits are that they that they need to work on, and then working with students to try and um, put things in place that will will help correct the the big hole that's been left in people's lives over the last year. That's great. I mean, Mary. Thank you so much for taking on this this piece of work. I think it's going to be really, really important. This is the this is the UPPF, uh, the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission. Um, lots, lots more to say about this. It's just launching this week. Uh, lots more to say about this over the coming weeks and months as uh, commissioners come on board and we start ev- evidence gathering. Mary, I mean, you you said before we want to hear from as wide amount of people as possible. Uh, just quickly tell us how we're going to do that. So I think we're going to work quickly and we're going to work both formally and informally, in terms of asking people for written evidence and oral evidence. But I think most of all, we want to make sure that we're we're pumping out um, uh, intel and ideas uh, as, as quickly as we can as they come together, because all of this is relevant from basically from September this year onwards, when, when the new academic year starts. So I think we want to hear from, obviously, people in the sector, um, but also people outside of the sector and from students themselves to try and bring together, you know, the best of people's ideas and approaches to how we can support students to get back on track for successful futures. That's right. You can read more about that on wonky.com and on the UPP Foundation website. Thanks a lot, Mary. <laughs> Gavin, fascinating okay. stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, where this commission could go and what it should look at? Okay, so I'm uh, I'm all in favour of a commission and stuff. And there's another commission that's been announced by Tide, the Times Hour, I think, um, with Rachel Sylvester as the, the, the lead or the chair. But the purpose of this commission is to explore how in the light of disruption everyone has faced during the pandemic, how can universities take action to support students from September 2021 to make the best of their remaining time at university and support those who are starting the journey uh, into higher education. So, you know, very noble aims. My sort of issue is that, um, you know, this, this commission is meant to report by, I think, the end of this year, so December 2021. And I'm sure they come up with some uh, sort of really good recommendations. But the issue is that you know, there's already like a whole cohort of students that, you know, let's say those students that were in their second year when the pandemic kicked in, they're coming to the end of their final year for the majority, and then they're into the graduate labour market. Now, as you know, the graduate labour market is, um, you know, in a, a terrible situation. And it's all very well concentrating just, you know, learning outcomes and supporting students while in learning. But I think this is avoiding or not looking or recognising the elephant in the room. Um, we have this huge problem in the labour market. So essentially, there's been a reduction in the number of payrolled employees 
Okay, of six, well, essentially 700,000 since. And, uh, and what percentage are under 25 in that reduction? Okay, so 700,000 in total, and under 25, Ooh. 63% are under 25, and then another 25% are aged between 25 and 34. Okay, so of the amongst over 50s, the number of payrolled employees has gone up. Okay, so we have a situation here that 88% of uh, the reduction employees, payrolled employees, are young people, 34 and below. Now, you think about the, the graduate labor market that these young people are, are going into, and it is brutal. Now, that's the sort of good news. Okay, the bad news is, if you look at the number of hours worked, okay, hours worked is the the most critical measure in terms of uh, economic growth. And this will tell you whether we're in a recession or otherwise, or recovering from a recession. The number of hours worked is saw a 20% decline to from the pre-pandemic to the, the bottom of the pandemic, uh, sort of in April, May last year. Uh, we're still 8% below pre-pandemic levels now, okay, in terms of the number of hours worked. So it's not just the number of employees. There are fewer employees concentrate amongst young people, but it's also the case the number of hours worked is is, is declined even further. So my concern is that, uh, you know, looking at, um, you know, what is facing young people going into the labor markets, it's absolutely brutal. And, you know, it's all very well looking at uh, the learning of students and what, how they can maximize what they have in their time available. But this, there has to be a huge amount of work in terms of preparing them for what's ahead Okay, and I think that is absolutely crucial. Jenny, one of the things I worry about with this is isn't you know I mean obviously this you know this whole issue of preparedness for a brutal labour market and you know whether that's about supporting graduates to you know build new businesses or you know f- f- you know lobbying government to find you know ways to you know kind of cushion this over the next few years and, and reduce the scarring who knows but one of the things i worry about is the kind of you know the kind of psycho- psychological and social impacts of all of this when we're not telling young people that they're kind of you know uh nasty snowflakes and trying to rewrite history we're, we're plunging them into economic chaos and when i say young people i don't just mean obviously people later i mean you know you know this is people under 35 this is a this is really really you know hostile time to be young yeah this worries me a lot um i it it was, to be honest, it was just this morning I had a realisation that we have moved away from talking about disadvantaged groups within the student population to talking about the student population as a whole, uh, as a disadvantaged group, and actually young people as a whole. And I think Gavin's uh, just outlined the economic case for that really, really well. You know, the, the, there is uh, huge disparities in, in wealth and opportunity between generations and students themselves were were already starting to recognize that when we did our survey in 2019 and it's got much much worse under the the pandemic so so i I think on that grounds but also uh mental health so we we did a um we did a survey last month uh 77 of students surveyed said they'd struggled with their mental health and well-being as a result of covid and that's within the context of you know, every survey, our own and other people's just, just showing a, a higher incidence every year uh, in mental health issues, however however you define that on a like-for-like basis going up every year. So it does worry me. It worries me on quite a practical level because um, in September, a lot of thousands of students are 
uh, going to, to come and live with us, um, for which I have a, a certain amount of accountability. And uh, a lot of them have been in lockdown for a year. Um, and a lot of them have, you know, as we've seen in the survey, uh, struggled with their mental health. And, and you know, we're, we're pretty nervous about what that means for them and, and for, uh, you know, the, the teams that are supporting them. Um, so I really, really welcome this commission. I, I hope we can uh, be part of it in some way and, and provide them with evidence. And uh, I think it's a, a gap that very much needed to be filled. Gavin, you, you will have listened to the Chancellor the other week stand up and do the budget. What, why, why, why is it? Do you think that there is this continued, you know, lack of focus on opportunity and the economic circumstances of the of the young from the government? It's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for Rishi Sunak. I mean, I think there, I think there is. Um, I think there's a general short-sightedness in a lot of uh, government economic policy. Um, I think that's a real issue. And I don't think, you know, I, I think that sort of uh, is exemplified by the, the austerity policy of, of a decade. I mean, it was, you know, incredibly short-sighted. It was really, really poor economics. Um, you know, and we're, we're paying the price now. Uh, I mean, I think many of the, the decisions that have been making by the Chancellor now uh, essentially are appealing to, you know, conservative core voters, but are not, uh, don't have any sort of long-term positive or won't have any sort of long-term positive consequences on the economy or uh, young people. You know, maybe it's a political thing. Maybe <clears throat> maybe it's just a realisation that young people in particular are, are less likely to vote conservative than um, older people. And, you know, these policies or the policies that are implemented tailor that or tailor to that. I mean, I think on a, on a side issue, I think there's a real issue for this commission because on in terms of resources, um, you know, universities are under sort of huge financial pressure. And, um, you know, undoubtedly there's going to be sort of recommendations to, you know, provide additional support and et cetera, et cetera. And these are all going to cost money. Now, if you look at uh, what the effect of the sort of pandemic is on the wider economy, if economic growth or if the growth in earnings is one percentage point lower than would otherwise be the case, okay, not unreasonable. This basically means that, um, you know, the exchequer cost of funding a cohort of students goes up by about half a billion pounds. Okay, so the current cost of funding a cohort is about ten and a half billion pounds. So essentially, it's about a 5% increase. There's not going to be, and, and essentially what's going to happen is if the government takes a narrow view and says, we have to save that money, we have to save that half a billion pounds because of the additional loan write-offs, because graduate labour market is so poor, then the money has to come from somewhere else in the higher education sector. So essentially, universities won't have the money uh, to support students, whether they are continuing students or whether they're newly arriving in September. There won't be any money to support these students with the mental health issues that they're, they're facing and to maximise whatever you know learning outcomes they can achieve in the remaining time in university. It, I mean, it's it's you know. So I wish the commission, the UPP commission, the best. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's fighting with its hands tied behind its back. And finally, researchers at the University of Bristol have published a paper looking at the mental health effects of a science of happiness course that launched there in 2018. Jenny, what did they find? Oh, this is a happy way to end, isn't it? Because it is all about happiness. They found that uh, the students who took the course compared to a control group had better mental health at the end of it. Uh, and as The Guardian said, the course leader was was astounded 
by the results. So uh, it's it's a nice piece of news. Um, they, they've also got some findings from uh, how it worked during the pandemic. So those who took it during the early part of the pandemic, they didn't report an increase in happiness, but they didn't report a decrease either. And they were judged to be more resilient than the control group. Uh, and then those who took an online version at the later part of the pandemic uh, saw this similar increase in happiness as the, the first cohort. So it's really nice to find something that works when it comes to young people's mental health. Um, I, th I think there are some caveats um, that although there was a control group. It, it wasn't a, a random. It wasn't a randomised control trial. So um, those who took the course were were self-selecting, which means we we don't understand its impact on a, a wider diversity of students. Um, and also that while it did improve the well-being of those who took part, we don't know how effective it might be at reducing the actual human cost of poor mental health in terms of more serious uh, incidents or diagnoses or self-harm, you know, and so on. But actually anything that improves the well-being of students, I think, is great. So uh, they've got something that works. There are some areas for further research. Gavin, back to the stuff we were talking about right at the start, the... the, what, the because students in the UK choose a subject and then take a course in a subject rather than, you know, just kind of apply to our university, we're quite sniffy about this kind of credit bearing stuff that isn't directly related to your subject. But I mean, this is an example of a Russell Group University offering academic credit for something that isn't related to your subject and is related to this kind of wider, you know, kind of mental health, happiness, well-being agenda. Is this, you know, could this be where more agendas go in terms of the kind of, you know, these these what are so-called softer skills than the sort of thing you get on your economics or your engineering degree? Yeah, I mean, potentially. I mean, this is a bit out of left field, but I mean, some institutions uh, do offer you know, a much wider breadth of uh, subjects and courses to students. I mean, it's certainly the case in places in, um, certainly more so the case in Scotland. So someone like St. Andrews, you know, if you rock up to do a particular, like a history degree, you can, you know, pick and choose a whole range of subjects in your first year. And then you sort of like, you know, figure out what you enjoy. And then you sort of specialize in those areas. And I've always been amazed uh in the UK or in England in particular, where, you know, students are sort of like corralled straight down of a sort of pretty narrow path and they're not given a time to sort of explore, you know, uh, sort of different subject areas within their degree. I also sort of think, um, you know, for many university departments um, and schools within universities, I think there's a real issue about, you know, competing for or competition for students. And I always sort of think that, you know, universities would be much more efficient if, you know, for instance, if law students could take a, a, a drama unit, you know, potentially for some lawyers, barristers, whatever, if they intend to become barristers, presumably having a drama, you know, seriously, presumably, ha presumably having a drama, uh, you know, unit or some sort of experience that is probably a good thing. You know, why can't a mathematician, somebody studying maths, take some uh, a logic course in philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of think in terms of like, you know, spreading the fixed cost and actually sort of keeping universities and specific departments sustainable, this ability to sort of pick and choose, you know, a little bit. Uh, it's got to be a good thing. So I'm, I'm absolutely all for students having, you know, more choice. Um, you know, I sort of think when I, when I undertook, I did study an arts degree. And when I rocked up, you know, essentially to study, uh, I could pick any three subjects from 27 arts and humanities subjects. So, you, you know, I studied maths and economics, but then my third subject, 
you know, could it be linguistics or, you know, history of art or whatever? I was a student in 1995 at the all-time low of uh, the unit of resource. And, you know, I, I did media studies at University of the West of England, Bristol Poly. And, uh, you know, at the time, I loved doing philosophy in my first year. I only later found out they were just unit farming in order to keep the course going because, <laughs> you know, there wasn't enough, really enough resource to, you know, in the unit of resource to keep the whole thing running. Jenny, it, 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 well, the other thing I thought that was really interesting about this is it, it's not just a kind of set of soft skills. That There was, you know, some proper academic theory here. You know, the, the module is the science of happiness. I wonder whether this kind of practical application of, you know, academic theory and academic research, you know, speaks to something wider about what students are starting to want to see and look for out of their education in terms of being able to apply things into their lives or their community or the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting thought. Um, I, it does certainly chime in with what I think we know about this particular generation, Generation Z, um, that they are looking for for this greater meaning. Uh, and uh, from, from my sample of two Generation Z people in my house, they are very, very interested in uh, the psychology of mental health anyway. And I, I, we've seen some data that, that that's, that's a bit more widespread. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that, that students want to engage on a deeper level with uh, what they're learning. I'm also as well a massive fan of, of greater choice of subjects. And as we're all sharing, you know, I was a mathematician who got the opportunity to do courses in anthropology and psychology. I had to fight the system to do it because it wasn't standard, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I would want that for my kids. I would, you know, I would want that to be more widespread because, you know, why would we not want more rounded graduates who've, who uh, have got you know a backing in in a number of different disciplines but it's uh, something that the the system is is quite resistant to and this more rounded graduate can only be good for the economy right that's absolutely right and listen there's one other thing it's like uh you know the treasury uh the attack dogs of government i mean they've um they've, they've got a, a sort of a guide for undertaking appraisal and evaluation in uh, government is called the green book and essentially they've moved significantly towards incorporating well-being and happiness measures in terms of um you know an outcome that should be measured as a part of any government policy so you know it is it's not some sort of bonkers idea about looking at the science of happiness it's not it's you know since uh richard laird at the lse sort of initiated this 15 20 years ago this has become has now become mainstream <clears throat> and central government sort of acknowledges how important well-being and happiness is and it should be considered as part of any uh, economic policy so i mean you know it's not uh, they're not dichotomous at all they're absolutely interlinked economic well-being and social well-being um are in- completely interlinked so that's about it for this term remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything that's going on in ukhe do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks to gavin jenny mike radcliffe everyone at team wonky for making the show happen every week Uh, We're off next week, so until next term, stay wonky. Mm